Welcome to the Friday Five, a series in which we cover five stories in health and science research over the previous week that you may have missed. There are plenty of controversies and ethical issues in science, and we get into many of them in our online magazine. But there are also lots of stories to be excited about, and this news roundup is focused on scientific work to give you a therapeutic dose of inspiration headed into the weekend. First up in the Friday Five, there's good reason to be suspicious of supplements, which by definition haven't been approved by the FDA to treat diseases. But a supplement called nicotinamide riboside, or NR, has been the focus of some promising research in recent years, and a new study from researchers at the University of Delaware and the National Institute on Aging suggests that NR, when taken as a pill by healthy older adults, makes it from the blood into the brain and improves certain markers that have been linked to dementia including Alzheimer's. So what exactly is NR? It's a form of vitamin B3 that builds up in cells until it forms another tricky acronym, NAD, which stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. NAD is basically the fuel that powers the machinery of our cells and helps repair them. It's so critical, if we ran completely out of it, we'd quickly drop dead. As we get older, our levels of NAD decline, so our inner machinery doesn't work as well. And some scientists think that supplementing with NR to crank NAD back up could help prevent diseases that tend to happen with older age. As reported in this new paper, published in Aging Cell, the researchers got older adults to take NR, the stuff that raises NAD levels, for six weeks. After that, the researchers could have used an MRI to study the effects, but MRI scans are very expensive and don't directly measure the benefits. Instead, they went with a simple blood draw, looking at extracellular vesicles in the blood. These EVs revealed proteins that come from neurons in the brain. For more information about these EVs, I asked Christopher Martens, who led the research and is the director of the Delaware Center for Cognitive Aging Research and a professor of kinesiology and applied physiology. Others have reported increases in the NAD signal using MRI after taking nicotinamide riboside, uh, particularly in Parkinson's disease. And our paper used a slightly different approach where we captured these small vesicles that we can say with pretty good confidence bud off of neurons and enter the bloodstream. And so when we collect them out of the blood, we're quite confident that they came from neural tissue, which largely exists in the brain. I asked Martens where this idea of using EVs to measure these proteins came from. So this concept of using extracellular vesicles has been around for a while now. I first learned about it probably about 10 years ago. And when I came to Delaware, I formed a collaboration with a intramural investigator at the National Institute on Aging, Dimitrios Kapagianis, who's a neurologist, but also uh, studies these extracellular vesicles in, in detail. And we were discussing my ongoing clinical trial and my past work with NR. And so we, we formulated this idea to test whether NR has an effect on important biomarkers like NAD and Alzheimer's relevant markers in the brain. But it's been used in other applications as well and has been referred to in some cases as a liquid biopsy because it allows us to take a blood sample and investigate what's going on inside a, a tissue that may be a little bit harder to access, like the brain, for example. These vesicles showed that levels of NAD had, in fact, gone up from taking NR, and this tended to go hand-in-hand with improvements in amyloids that have been linked to Alzheimer's. 
So you may be wondering, why would healthy people who aren't having any cognitive issues have these amyloids in the first place? Well, these proteins that we attribute to Alzheimer's, like amyloid beta or uh, tau, are in everybody's body and in their brain. So these are these are proteins that have a normal function. And unfortunately, when somebody gets Alzheimer's disease, we start to see that the function of these proteins change a little bit and start to accumulate in more of a pathological manner that has been linked to some of the cognitive symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So even people that are cognitively normal in their late 50s or early 60s may start to have a greater accumulation of these proteins, even though there's no cognitive symptoms associated with that yet. The people who ingested the NR and had a rise in NAD within these vesicles from their brain also had a reduction in amyloid beta-42, which is the uh, a peptide that breaks off of the amyloid protein that's been associated with some of the pathological features of Alzheimer's. It doesn't mean that these people had Alzheimer's by any means. The ease of a blood draw and knowing exactly what to look for could lead to greater access for people to get tested for signs of Alzheimer's in a way that's less invasive. The Delaware National Institute on Aging team is continuing their research in another sample of people who do have cognitive deficits to see if taking NR will lead to benefits in their cognitive function. We're moving some of our work now to people that have a clinically relevant deficit in cognitive function so that we can start to unpack whether these uh, biochemical changes that are occurring in the brain are actually linked to uh, functional improvements as well. In the meantime, should people start taking NR supplements, maybe especially if they have risk factors for Alzheimer's? Not so fast, Martin said. Really, where we're at in the state of the field now is these early, small-scale clinical trials that are relatively short in duration. I mean, my study was um, that we reported here was six weeks of NR supplementation. The work that we're doing right now in older adults with MCI is only 12 weeks. And so that really doesn't give us a wide enough window to test whether the NR is actually lowering or slowing the progression of the disease or lowering risk. To do that, we really need to translate this work into larger phase three clinical trials where people take NR for uh, at least a year. And those are much Bigger trials, more expensive trials likely would need to be conducted over multiple study sites throughout the country. As the field reports these smaller findings in these smaller scale studies, that all builds from a scientific standpoint, it builds momentum toward those larger scale studies. The challenge, and this is the same process that uh, is taken by pharmaceutical companies when they develop drugs. The challenge for us in this field is that while we're doing all of this early phase efficacy and R&D work, the, the supplement is already available on the market. And so we get a lot of those kind of questions. And my response is typically the same, that we don't know yet whether this will have a beneficial effect on the actual disease. That's what we're trying to study. Um, and we're trying to report as, as you know ethically as we can what our findings are without overselling the potential until we have done those bigger trials. Next up in the Friday Five, you've heard of smart cities, but if you're like me, you probably haven't heard of smart senior towns. These are towns that excel at providing high quality of life for older people, a life that's safe and independent. And these towns were recently studied by sociologists at Iowa State. They dug into existing surveys back to 1994 of people who live in small towns in Iowa that have a higher proportion of seniors over age 65. 
The residents had given their input through these surveys on everything from community and civic engagement to how much they got out of the local services in their towns. And the researchers found that the towns with more positive responses from seniors, the smart senior towns, had some important things in common, like more safety and better healthcare services, good grocery stores, entertainment, and recreation. And they tended to have higher populations than the more vulnerable senior towns that did worse on the surveys, since larger towns often have more resources to support older people. Towns, not just cities, are an increasingly important focus for better supporting our older populations of seniors, said Ilona Matsiak, the co-author of this study and visiting scholar at Iowa State and associate professor of sociology at Maria Jagodziewska University in Warsaw, Poland. Small rural towns are aging uh, more rapidly uh, in, in many countries, uh, not only in the U.S., but in many countries you can uh, observe that. Uh, and there are also different challenges uh, that older people living in smaller communities face. Like, for example, they, they need to deal with geographic uh, distances in terms of accessing uh, services, for example. There are usually problems with uh, transportation. So there is almost no uh, public transportation. And also, I think that there is too much focus in general on large cities. So researchers, media, <laughs> policymakers are mostly focused on what is going on in, in large cities. Importantly, according to Matisiak's research, some towns with a lot of resources lost their status as smart senior towns as the years went on. This is the example of a larger town uh, of about uh, 2,000 people uh, that actually stopped being uh, a smart senior town uh, according to uh, you know, a more recent data uh, that we have, uh, and it's because of uh, services, actually. They lost certification for nursing uh, services and in people's homes, so uh, it affected a lot what uh, older people think about the quality of life in town they live in. And other towns without resources managed to become smart by investing in intergenerational programs that drove more engagement and higher quality of life. Like projects or activities connecting older people with uh, younger generations. So, for example, school kids uh, visiting uh, older adults, older people in nursing home or things like that. It's an important investment for towns to make because the more satisfied and engaged seniors are, the more they're able to give back to the community share their wisdom, and help nurture the younger generations. But, Matisiak said, even smart senior towns can do more, according to the surveys she studied. One of the most important recommendations uh, from us, that the local leadership uh, in those, even in those smart senior towns, should try to be more inclusive in terms of, of age. The researchers are now looking to study other aspects of small towns, such as whether seniors in smart senior towns have better health outcomes. Speaking of older people continuing to thrive, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize-winning psychologist and economist at Princeton, is continuing to innovate at age 89 with a new study on whether money can make people happy beyond a certain amount of income. Kahneman's study on this topic back in 2010 is the one that found that a person is happier on a day-in, day-out basis as they make more and more money, up to $75,000, when making more money starts to have much less of an effect on being happier. But in 2021, another researcher from the University of Pennsylvania, Matthew Killingsworth, got pretty much the opposite result. 
That happiness keeps on increasing the more pay raises you get even after passing 75k. Instead of bickering with Killingsworth, Kahneman reached out to him and invited him to work with Kahneman on another study to get to the bottom of their differences. Kahneman called the effort an adversarial collaboration, and as much as that may sound like a loveless marriage, this was more productive, leading to a new paper in PNAS, co-authored by both of these researchers, finding that making more money is linked to more and more happiness beyond 75k or any other threshold, but that's only for most people. An exception is people who are already doing pretty well, financially speaking, but also quite unhappy. When they cross a threshold of about $100,000 per year, they won't get any happier if they get to make even more. And people who are rich but unhappy won't get happier with more money either. Meanwhile, people who are decently happy but not exactly walking on sunshine become more happy in proportion to how much their pay increases beyond any threshold while those lucky but somewhat annoying souls who are always bursting with cheer actually get exponentially happier as they make more than 100k. The adversarial collaboration by Kahneman and Killingsworth involves a third-party mediator. The diplomatic duo collected their data using an app developed by Killingsworth that asked study participants several times per day how they were feeling. But each side has said that this new paper wouldn't have been possible without each other, partly because the collaboration forced each party to recognize the shortcomings of their own perspective. The findings might be especially useful to people as they introspect about their own emotional states and how important it is to them to find work that pays a big salary. Next up in the Friday Five, we can all remember, probably more than once, times when you were drunk and wished you weren't, or maybe it was others who wished you weren't. Well, researchers at the University of Texas Southwestern have discovered a hormone that does exactly that and could be used for cases of intoxication that are more critical than all those times you drunk dialed your ex. The new study points to treatments that could reverse drunkenness for the 1 million people who land in the hospital each year with severe intoxication. The researchers realized that the hormone FGF21 plays a role when they got rid of a gene in mice that makes FGF21 and it took way longer than usual for drunk mice to sober up. And more FGF21 seemed to make mice less interested in drinking alcohol to begin with and to protect them from liver damage when they did drink. Most recently, the researchers did an experiment in which they got mice drunk enough that they passed out. Those binge drinkers who were then injected with FGF21 took half as long to sober up compared to those who didn't get the treatment. In a related experiment, the mice didn't drink quite as much, and when they got FGF21, they got their balance and coordination back in much less time. Interestingly, the hormone doesn't appear to affect blood alcohol levels. Rather, it seems to affect certain neurons responsible for waking animals up, including humans. While other drugs have been developed to reverse other sedatives, like opiates, FGF21 seems to have an effect only on alcohol intoxication. The study, published in Cell Metabolism, shouldn't be interpreted to mean that you can get drunk to irresponsible levels knowing you can reverse it to avoid embarrassing behavior, the researchers say. Their intention is to help the hundreds of thousands of people each year who land in the hospital to more quickly stabilize their conditions. Next up, a new test can identify markers of anxiety in the blood, 
and the results could be used to find treatments, including medications, that are matched to your specific form of anxiety, according to a paper just published in Molecular Psychiatry. In the study, researchers at the University of Indiana studied people with anxiety disorders over a long period of time, regularly taking blood samples to monitor how their genes were being expressed, so they could see how the gene expression changed when the people were experiencing a lot of anxiety. Then they picked out the biomarkers that seemed to be most related to the cases of severe anxiety and tested them in another group and found that an individual's biomarker could predict the severity of their anxiety, with only some of the biomarkers showing up in each person with anxiety. Many of these blood markers are already targeted by existing drugs, so the idea is to only have to use the specific drugs that are known to help with the biomarkers that the individual has in their blood. These therapies include benzodiazepines, lithium, ketamine, and omega-3 fatty acids, but there are many others, and the Indiana researchers even identified additional drugs not currently used for anxiety that could be based on their match to the biomarkers. Because benzodiazepines can be really addictive, it could be important to know to avoid even trying it if the patient's biomarkers suggest it wouldn't have benefits. In addition to drugs, the researchers think there will always be an important role for working with a therapist and lifestyle changes to help anxiety, but they also think personalized anxiety treatment will be an important part of the solution for many people. As always, you can find links to each study I've discussed this week in the show notes. And please check out the leaps.org magazine online, where you can learn about the latest and most important challenges and developments in science such as this week, an article on the imminence of lab-grown meat coming to a supermarket near you, and whether anyone's actually going to eat it. Overall, the Leaps.org platform looks at innovations through the lens of rational optimism. You can find out what to be concerned about, but we also tell you which scientific breakthroughs are giving reason for excitement. Thanks for listening to the Friday Five, and have a great weekend.